from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Like to welcome you back to Trauma ICU Rounds and Happy New Year, everybody. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim, and it has certainly been a hot minute. For those of you not in the know, I recently made the move back to my native Canada, where I'm currently stationed as the new trauma medical director in Victoria on the beautiful Vancouver Island in the province of British Columbia. So, very happy to remain on the West Coast. It's no secret that the Omicron variant is raging across many countries in this world, including both the U.S. and Canada. And so for all of my frontline healthcare providers, I certainly do hope that you're taking care of your health, mentally, emotionally, physically, and want to send a big shout out to you and thank you for your ongoing service and dedication. So while we've been on a little bit of a hiatus during the move, a number of things have been going on in the background that I'm really excited to share with you. In the first place, next week, we are launching the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, or JTAX, podcast. And these episodes will be released bi-weekly on Fridays and include things like author interviews with authors from the Best Of series of articles, which is a new feature of the monthly JTAX publication. In addition, we are committed to your learning and education, and Trauma ICU Rounds will be releasing bi-weekly episodes every other Friday, alternating with the JTAX podcast. We're super excited for the content that's coming out over the course of the 2022 calendar, and also very excited to announce that we will have free CME and CEs available starting in just a few weeks. Finally, if you haven't checked out the new TikTok channel, check it out. It's Trauma ICU Doc. We've been having a lot of fun getting used to making TikToks and videos, which leads into the final announcement, which is the launch of the Trauma ICU Rounds YouTube channel at the end of this month. More info to follow. So when I think of surgical scientific meetings or conferences, I think most of us would agree that the Trauma Critical Care and Acute Care Surgery Conference held in Vegas, aka the Maddox meeting, probably sets the bar or is the gold standard, not just for physicians, but individuals in healthcare and healthcare-related fields. I can't express how incredibly ecstatic and excited I was to get a personal invitation to speak at the conference this year. And for those of you who are thinking of attending, the meeting is happening from March 28th to the 30th of this year at Caesars Palace, live in Las Vegas. So with the new year here, and as I'm preparing my course syllabus material for the meeting, I thought there would be no better time and no better person to launch the 2022 Trauma ICU Rounds year than the one and only Dr. Ken Maddox. And Dr. Maddox really needs no introduction. He is a giant in the fields of trauma surgery, critical care, emergency surgery, EM, pre-hospital. And I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Maddox to talk about the past, present, and future of trauma resuscitation. And we had such a rich conversation that I've decided to chop it up into two episodes. So thanks for joining. Happy listening and learning. I'm not sure how many of the listeners know, many of whom are residents and med students, but 
Your formal fellowship training was in fact in CT surgery and not trauma. These days, thinking about someone training in cardiothoracic surgery and then making the jump to trauma surgery really doesn't seem like something that would happen. So maybe you could share with our audience, Dr. Maddox, how that happened and why Ben Tobe just happened to be the right place and you're there at the right time to make that career move. Part of the problem is us in organized surgery in our uh, taxonomy of what is surgery and what are the subspecialties of surgery. And we change the name about every five years. <laughs> and um, we change the name based upon almost local desires and recognition on the part of some dominant uh, uh, faculty member. And so whether it's emergency surgery, acute care surgery, uh, uh, urgent surgery, uh, general surgery, or just surgery, uh, those are all, in my view, variations on a theme of uh, the American College of Surgeons and the American Board of Surgery. And uh, I think understanding oneself and what is the genome that drives us, uh, and how do we differ from um, an internist, psychiatrist, pediatrician, and what we want to do with the tricks of the trade that we pick up uh, is an individual desire. Uh, The genome I'm talking about is uh, we, uh, as surgeons, uh, uh, like to identify a problem to define that problem, to ask the question, can we do something about it surgically and get on with it and be done with it and move on? For instance, appendicitis is fairly easy to diagnose. We don't need a bunch of CTs and a bunch of um, algorithms and practice guidelines. But once it's there, uh, we can fiddle around with it and give antibiotics and then treat the abscess and drain it and go on and on and on. (laughs) Or we can operate upon it. We can take that appendix out. Uh, We can wash them out, hoping they don't get an abscess. And if they don't, they don't get a sub-Q infection. They're done. On the other hand, internal medicine people, psychiatrists, rehabilitation, pediatricians, and others uh, like to... uh, uh, cogitate on an issue forever and ever and ever. And uh, uh, they know that they can alter the dose of digitalis and antibiotics and uh, insulin and go to a new insulin, a more expensive drug. They can order some more tests and and that's their livelihood. Uh, That's where they get uh, their income and uh, they enjoy fiddle fiddling around with, uh, um, uh, altering a treatment, and the patient comes back over and over and over and over again. I knew I wanted quick answers and to fix them and move on to the next problem. And I knew that I was driven by a lot of things I read, and I wanted to be a surgeon, whether it be the Hunterian type, whether it be uh, Peruvian, whether it be Indian, whether it be ancient uh, uh, Middle Eastern. I wanted to be a surgeon. So as I saw the tools available, the tools that became available 
while I was a medical student were things like uh, cardiopulmonary bypass, were things like intravascular uh, manipulations. Those did not exist when I started, did not exist at all. Uh, aminoglycosides did not exist. CT scan did not exist. MRI had not even been yet thought about. And when I saw the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, I said, I've got to have that skill. So I took thoracic surgery in order to be completely comfortable in knowing how the pump works, how to prime the pump, being able to prime the pump that there's not a pump tech around, being able to extrapolate the cardiopulmonary bypass to create ECMO, to create uh, autotransfusion, to be able to extend my incisions appropriately into the chest, to be able to make an incision anywhere in the body and feel as comfortable, if not more so, than the specialist in that area uh, was very exciting. That drove me into getting that skill set. In today's world, I would take a fellowship in vascular. I would take a a fellowship in uh, maybe radiology in order to drive a hybrid suite. And I would take a fellowship in thoracic on top of general surgery. And in order to accomplish that quickly, I would take one of the new uh, uh, special courses in the integrated programs. And I would go to a place that would work with me on creating that new individual. And I'm sure that would ultimately, five years from now, result in some new uh, nomenclature. That's a long answer to your question. I I apologize. Not at all. That's great to hear. And it sounds like from the standpoint of trauma, so you develop this great toolkit in thoracic surgery, vascular surgery. And then you also happened to be at a hospital where you were seeing a lot of trauma patients. And so that also gave you the opportunity, I'd imagine, to actually be able to apply those skills on a daily or regular basis. Yes, but it was serendipitous. Mm. During my last year of thoracic, I was debating, uh, do I go into academic medicine? Do I go into administrative medicine? I had been uh, nominated by Dr. DeBakey to be a White House fellow, which would have put me uh, there uh, in Washington, probably in the Department of Health or with the president during Watergate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I was looking to... uh, um, What am I going to do with my life? I even thought about private practice in Conroe, Texas, north of Houston. And Dr. DeBakey one day said, uh, uh, we only have one surgeon at Bentob, George Jordan, and he is sick with heart disease and with hepatitis. Uh, I need you to go over to Bentob when you finish your training and uh, help George. And so I said, whoops, because I knew if I were at St. Luke's or at Methodist, uh, I would have a lot of cases to write up. So I went over to Ben Taub and the cardiac volume and the vascular volume was low. I also then looked at uh, the organizations, if I stayed in academia, that I wanted to be a member of, American College of Surgeons, the American uh, uh, Association for Thoracic Surgery, the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, uh, uh, the Society of Vascular Surgery, on and on. And every one of them wanted 75 to 80% of my articles in their specialty, including critical mm-hmm. care. 
So I said, how can I finesse this? <laughs> so if you look at my CV, the first hundred articles are articles that are cardiothoracic vascular cases in super sick patients in the ICU with an emergency component, which allowed me with the same article to include that in emergency medicine, emergency surgery, critical care, vascular, thoracic, and whatever general surgery was at the time. So it was a serendipitous use of what I had, and what I had was trauma. And I was stuck because George Jordan wasn't getting any better, and so we had two surgeons. So I scrubbed literally on every case uh, that fell to those disciplines. Emergency medicine at that time did not exist, and we were creating what is going to be EMS, what is going to be pre-hospital. And so I stepped into a gold mine of opportunity of things that needed to be defined. Those environments exist today in a heck of a lot of areas if you just turn around and look for them and take advantage of that opportunity. You mentioned so many incredible innovations, advances, and technologies that have been introduced over the span of your career. You mentioned CT scan, and I think this year is the 50th anniversary of the initial one-slice scanner. When you think about some of the major innovations that have really impacted care of the critically injured or trauma patient, what would two or three, the top two or three major advances be in the care of, of trauma patients, Dr. Maddox? Number one, is the microchip. More than anything else, the microchip, uh, with all the things it touches, the phone, the computer, communications, uh, Zooms, um, allowed us to do things we could not have done otherwise, dealing with large volumes of information, the integration of those uh, it's been a mixed blessing, and we might get into that uh, later on. Uh, so uh, uh, the microchip. Number two, um, during the late 60s and early 70s, uh, we realized that coming back from Vietnam, we were not providing the kind of care in our trauma rooms, accident rooms, that's what emergency rooms were called, that we were providing in the war zone. And we were assigning the lowest trained individual to work in that accident room, usually trauma, fractures, burns, and they were unsupervised. And so there was dialogue probably among 15 or so people who ultimately made up on the surgery side, the trauma nucleus. Uh, we said there has to be a better way there's always a better way. So we simultaneously addressed uh, the pre-hospital care and that organization, both at the College of Surgeons level, the state level, the political level, the ambulance level, which at that time were run by the funeral parlors. And they fought over a dead body, not bringing people to the hospital alive. Dead body equaled a funeral from which they made their money. Incredible. Uh, and emergency rooms run by interns, unsupervised. And so emergency medicine, surgery that dealt with the acute big bad problem, the intensive care unit, 
and the pre-hospital care all started moving at about the same time. And uh, so that was one of those opportunities. But that had to be fixed. Uh, we had all we uh, had identified the problem, and we would have been derelict had we not done something about it as uh, the American College of Surgeons. And we we recognized the data that we had collected, uh, where it was good and where it was bad data, in opposition to some of the things we're doing today, where we create bad data and then create a, a horrible result or treatment schema because we did not define the problem well. Right. And as you say that, I can't help but think of Reboa. That seems to be one of the more recent, quote unquote, technological advances, although it, that technology has been around forever in the management of patients with ruptured triple A's or severe postpartum hemorrhage. But what are your thoughts on Reboa and its place in modern trauma care? Intravascular control and treatment I think is absolutely fantastic and wonderful. And there are many examples of that, including uh, intravascular ultrasound, the uh, counter-pulsating balloon, uh, on and on and on and on, and the treatment of abdominal aortic aneurysms. The industry and sometimes uh, entrepreneurial physicians uh, tried to uh, uh, define something different. I may have even been part of some of that. The Reboa is about the fourth reiteration of trying to tra- take care of trauma patients. And uh, uh, some of that we were involved in uh, years and years ago, as was Alex Walt in uh, uh, using Foley balloons. We, during uh, the Vietnam War and after the Vietnam War uh, and uh, we published and other people published from California, from your institution, from San Francisco, treatment of major, major abdominal vascular injury. And those results by the techniques that were used at that time were transabdominal, not transthoracic. At the same time, things like uh, uh, the Schrock shunt, and EC thoracotomy were applied to a different problem. Okay? Agreed. Both of those are a different problem. So along came Reboa. Yes, there was a problem, but the control to compare results to is not EC thoracotomy. Correct. It's laparotomy, grabbing the aorta with your hand, uh, and then doing something. And, and those data do exist with results that are significantly better, especially in California and in Texas, than that that is currently reported with the Reboa. So we have published data that is worse than the best data in major abdominal aortic injury. And we haven't recognized that that logic was wrong. So it's time to go to Reboa 2.5 or Reboa 3.0 and realize we have created increased injuries and we have prevented distal flow creating an acidosis that results in a higher mortality. So we need to define what the problem is. Now, how do we fix that? 
And uh, I think the people who are pushing Reboa are reluctant to acknowledge that they never had any good results because they weren't doing the old technique, but they've compared it to EC thoracotomy, which is, on the whole, people who are dying already when they come in the door. So uh, I think the technology is there and it's going to be applied in the future, but uh, not with the current uh, uh, balloon that is uh, being sold at a considerable cost yes, and at a considerable profit. So uh, as we look for opportunities, this is a fantastic opportunity uh, to take this to the lab. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's even been cleared by the military uh, uh, Institute of Surgical Research in San Antonio. And the military is the one that really wants for austere situations right. and special forces to have a device that uh, uh, is applicable. Yeah, and it sounds like certainly some of that research is now ongoing with the introduction of things like partial or P-Reboa in an effort to decrease some of that ischemic insult, particularly in patients with a zone one deployment. And I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I think some of the comparisons are really apples and oranges when you're comparing resuscitative thoracotomy versus Reboa. And Dr. Ronnie Stewart oftentimes talks about Rehoa or resuscitative hand occlusion of the aorta. And that probably is the right comparator versus Reboa. Now, when we talk about other innovations and, and major changes or landmark studies that have changed how we practice trauma care, I think that uh, we would be remiss not to mention the Bickle and Maddox paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where we looked at pre-hospital resuscitation in patients with penetrating torsal trauma. As far back as I can remember, this is one of the first real RCTs that was done in trauma and has really changed how we practice modern trauma care. Where did that notion come from, Dr. Maddox? Because oftentimes we learn from our predecessors. And so where did the idea for hypotensive resuscitation come from? And where are we today? The mast pants are not new. They go all the way back to 1900 as a G-suit and with aviation. And... Um, I was drafted into the Army and uh, went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. And uh, in 1965, so 66, 67, I was in the Army. And at Fort Rucker, uh, working in the Institute for Research uh, there with aviation, uh, developed uh, the modern-day MAST, military anti-shock trousers and it was well on its way when i went there it's not my invention i was able to take some of those to vietnam and in vietnam they were applied and uh, they had uh, some data that were published uncontrolled but uh, uh, published and showed good results i came back to Houston as a resident, and uh, 
I think some cities in California, cities in Florida, cities in uh, the Northeast were using mass pants in the pre-hospital phase and writing up their results uh, with various kinds of trauma. And uh, I was working at Bentop, had very low budget, and um, the EMS was just beginning to develop. And I said, let's, let's get some masks. We can't afford them. Let's get some masks. We can't afford them. Let's get some masks. <laughs> we looked at uh, the inclusion criteria used in California, in Washington, in uh, Florida, and looked at our own data uh, only to determine that uh, for those same injuries, we already had some pretty good results, uh, actually better than the mast. So we said uh, uh, we're pretty good, but we can do better if we had some mast. So we developed a prospective randomized trial and had to get waiver of consent through FDA to study mast. And we studied uh, over 900 patients where we randomized them to, to mast or no mast uh, with a uh, uh, pre-hospital blood pressure of 90. Okay. <laughs> we then published that at AAST to discover when we elevated the blood pressure in the ambulance or the emergency room, we increased the mortality. So we made, by using the device other people were claiming, we now were saying, uh, we're hurting, we're killing people. So one night on call or one Saturday with our feet up drinking coffee, I said, wait, wait a minute. We're also giving two liters of crystalloid in the ambulance. We're giving crystalloid in the emergency room. We're giving crystalloid in the operating room. Why? because we want to raise the blood pressure. So I asked somebody over at the Army Institute of Surgical Research, in your experimental animal, when do you pop the clot? They said 80, 80 systolic. So we developed, we, 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 we said, where are our entry criteria? I wanted to make it 70 systolic. Um, and it was decided by the review board that it could be 90. And our, our hypothesis was, if we do a prospective, randomized, uh, pre-hospital and emergency room study, uh, crystalloid versus no crystalloid, uh, hypotension versus uh, normal tension. And that came out of the mass study. Okay, And if it were logical for mast, it ought to be logical for crystalloid. So uh, we published it. What are we doing today? We're using various forms of blood and vasopressors to try to achieve a blood pressure, which is um, the same or higher than the pre-injury blood, blood pressure. <laughs> I, I I would say to you, hypotension is a teleologic protective device that God has provided or nature has provided to keep the blood in the vasculature. And if we elevate it by whatever means, 
then uh, we're destroying that teleologic, historic, evolutionary mechanism. So at the Las Vegas meeting this year and last the two years ago, particularly this year by Dr. Kaplan from Philadelphia, he presented a concept which absolutely silenced the audience. He said, in the emergency room, in the operating room, in the ICU, we should stop using vasopressors merely to raise the blood pressure to 120, and we ought to keep it less than 90, maybe less than 70. So one of your questions that you sent to me ahead of time were, where are some of those areas? Somebody listening to this podcast needs to have the courage to fail or the courage to win by saying, when we brag about sending someone to the ICU on triple antibiotics, it's not because we're better than everybody else. We are dumber than our own research. (laughs) So uh, uh, this is all evolutionary in the same train of thought. And no one is smarter than somebody else. It's just what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And the same logic applies. And hypotensive uh, uh, resuscitation is, is natural and evolutionary. And so to put the word resuscitation on a balloon that raises the blood pressure is absolutely counter logic. And if we were in a philosophical debate, uh, the person who introduced that form would lose every single time. We'll definitely have a link to this. Honestly, it's a landmark paper. I think we use that term a lot, but this really is one of those landmark papers in trauma, critical care and pre-hospital care. And we'll also have a link to one of my favorite articles. I include images and snapshots from this article all the time in presentations, but it's uh, from leaky buckets to vascular injuries. Uh, written by Hirschberg as well as Maddox, and that was in Jacks in 2007. Fantastic article that kind of reviews this concept and really simplifies things in a way that is easy to grasp and understand. So that concludes the first part of our interview with the one and only the giant Dr. Ken Maddox. Please be sure to visit us wherever you download your podcast. And if it's Apple, iTunes, or podcasts, make sure you leave a kind comment as well as a five-star rating. It really does help us to grow the show and ensure that we can provide you with the best possible content. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another. (laughs) 